Whilst Lou is coming up, if you could grab a Bible and turn to John chapter 6, Tolua is going to read from verses 5 to 15. Now, before you do that, Tolua, just to put you on the spot, I didn't prep you for this. Tolua, you were at Effective Leadership. Uh, what was your highlight from Effective, from effective Leadership? Let's try this, okay. Uh, can you repeat the question? What, what was your highlight from effective leadership? Receiving the Holy Spirit, I think. Um, it's one thing to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you know, in your prayer time, but when you're just surrounded by people who are so eager to be full. Uh, yeah, yesterday was different. Yesterday was amazing. So uh, thank you, everyone, who made that possible yesterday and just been so blessed over the weekend. That's lovely. Um, Tallulah was one of quite a few people that booked in for effective leadership. We had people flying in from Belgium and Spain and people stopping over from India to go back to LA. Um, it, was, it was really, really um, great. And we'll be sharing a little bit more about that um, tonight as well. So Tallulah, please read God's word to us. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked us only to test him for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one of them to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed the, to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Thank you, Tolua. Sandy, come and join me up here. Um, let me introduce Sandy um, to all of you. Sandy, I first met Sandy 15, 16 years ago now at an Alpha conference at Holy Trinity Brompton. I was 19 or 20, something like that. And I'd taken some of our student leaders um, from the church that I was working at in Sheffield down to this conference. And um, it was fantastic two days. And Sandy um, ministered to us and um, was just fantastic speaking into some of um, our lives, gave us some just fantastic ministry. And um, Sandy, we really want to honor Sandy because... Um, He's had a huge impact on um, the life of the church in this nation. And um, we're just so privileged that he's um, come all this way up north to Newcastle um, to speak to us. Um, and we just want to, I'd really encourage you just to open your hearts and um, to receive from Sandy um, this morning in ministry. And... Um, Sandy, can I pray for you? In fact, can we all pray for you? Should we all stand and pray for Sandy? And um, Annette, do you want to come and join Sandy as well? We'll pray for you as well. And um, let's pray for them as they, they've come and poured out into, into the region for the past, well, three or four days, really. 
Um, they're heading back down south today. So let's pray a blessing on them, shall we, that they may have received as much as they've given out and let's pray that they'd know all that God has for them. So shall we all pray out loud together for Sandy and Annette? Father, thank you for Sandy. Thank you for Annette. Thank you for their ministry. And Father, we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon them. God, we thank you for them. Thank you for all of that they've poured into the life of the church around the world. And we pray that they would receive from you as they pour out your spirit upon them. Come, Holy Spirit. So, um, should we give it up for Sandy and Annette again? Thank you, Ben, so much. I am really interested to see who it was you were introducing a, a few minutes ago. But it's a lovely treat for Annette and me to be here. I think we might think about moving to Newcastle, don't you? I mean, there's a church. Uh, because they always said, don't move anywhere until you know there's a decent church there. And um, I know you're not allowed to say some churches are decent and some aren't, but there are some that are very decent and very, very decent. So thank you very much for inviting us. Thank you for the um, conference yesterday. Thank you for the welcome that you've had. It's a traditional, I think, northern welcome. We did such a, I want you to know that I have studied theology. You may, you may be surprised to hear that. But I did it at Durham. So we used to, <laughs> that's right. So we do know this little bit part of the world. And, um, Forgive me if I mention that, Dur that Newcastle and Durham are halfway to Scotland from London. And Scotland's my home, I come from Scotland, so, um, um, and people get bored of, of hearing that, but if you live in England, you have to make the point quite regularly that, um, that we're Scots. And we're thrilled to be here, thrilled to be with Christy here too, and to meet you, and to meet um, Matthew and his lovely wife, and all, all of you. So thank you very much indeed. And thank you, Tolua, for reading that um, passage from St. John's Gospel. I, I don't know about you, but I remember I was caught up some years ago reading um, a letter that the old Archbishop Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury, had written to his son. His son was struggling with his faith and having difficulty in equating all that was going on in the world and his life and his studies uh, with his Christian faith and his father's Christian faith. And Archbishop Temple wrote to him, because he was at, um, and, and um, he, the boy was at Oxford University at the time when he was struggling. And what he said in his letter was, I am obliged to confess that from 17 to 25, I indulged largely in speculations and philosophical difficulties. But I felt all alike, along like a swimmer who sees no shore before him after a long time of swimming and at last allows himself to be picked up by a ship that seems to be going his way. My passing ship, he said, was St. John. And I suspect there are a number of people all over the place who are struggling with various aspects of the Christian faith. And St. John is always, of course, I mean, all the books of the Bible are special, but St. John, John seems, I always feel, to 
have a special feel about it. Written by John, Jesus' closest friend who lived and walked with Jesus while he was here on earth for three years, and then he lived and walked with Jesus for another 70 or 80 years, probably, or 60, 70, and, um, and then wrote this, wrote this book. And it's the fruit of a lifetime spent in the presence of God. Now, forgive me if I change the tone just for a minute, but I'm trying to work out if there's anybody here that does not know a story I sometimes tell about the crisis in the Edinburgh Zoo. Is there anybody who does not know that story? Oh, good. Well, I'll tell you. Well, again, I've explained I'm a Scot, so it's not a sort of, you don't have to be defensive about the Scots, because um, I'm not being rude about them. There was a crisis in their zoo. Their gorilla died, and they had no gorilla. And it coincided with a young man who went to the zoo asking for a job. And the manager of the zoo said, wow, this is wonderful that you're here, fantastic. Our gorilla has just died. Here's a gorilla skin and here's a gorilla helmet. You are the gorilla. So he was thrilled to have a job and they were thrilled to have a gorilla. And they had a public holiday in a few days' time and he was practicing for that and on the swings and in his cage and having huge fun and enjoying himself. And he got so overexcited that he found himself at one point flying up and over the top of his cage and he landed in the next door cage, which was the lion's cage. And he landed about six feet away from the lion and the lion got to his feet and started stroking his face with his paw. And then he started padding towards our friend who was quite close to him. At which point our friend began to panic and started shouting, help, he said, help, get me out of here, quick, help, help. And he heard a rather furry voice in his ear whispering, shut up or we'll both lose our jobs. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Well, I tell the story because, well, partly because I love it and I tell it to myself in the bath, but that's a different issue. But secondly, it raises a number of interesting questions. Question number one is, what makes a gorilla? Is it the inside or the out? And I can see it already, you're leaping ahead of me, but it enables us to ask an even more important question, which is, what makes a Christian? Inside or out? And what happens if the inside and the outside don't agree? And there are many people, aren't there, who struggle with that. You know, in the old days, you had to behave at church on Sunday from 11 till sort of 11.40. It's, it's longer now. That's good news, I hope. But struggling, and we can all behave for about 40 minutes. But what happens after we've left church and we've got back home again? And then we've got to live out through Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. And what happens if we don't feel like a Christian? Now, the area that we're in, of course, as you know, is the Holy Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit comes inside us, rather than remaining outside us, then life changes completely. And we begin to experience something of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is the new love for people, a new joy, a new peace, and all the fruit of the Spirit, which comes with the presence of Jesus. Now, I asked if we could have this passage today, um, the, the um, feeding of the 5,000, 
uh, and you will you'll know it very well, I'm sure you do. It's the only miracle in the Gospels that all four Gospel writers describe. And uh, interestingly enough, I think if you don't have to be an Anglican to love the Book of Common Prayer. I'm so excited that your minister here, your master or your whatever you are, the chief servant here loves the Book of Common Prayer. And I'm hoping we won't lose sight of it. It's still authorized in the Church of England, but you're allowed to use it even if you're not a paid-up Anglican member of the Church of England. Because um, Thomas Cranmer, who, who formed the basis of the present Book of Common Prayer, was a very keen evangelical, and he was the Archbishop of Canterbury, as most of you will know, under a tyrant, King Henry VIII, and Thomas Cranmer didn't know really whether he would be alive the next day or not. And um, he was martyred, of course, at the end under Mary and burnt at the stake. He was a lovely man, and his heart was set on evangelism. And he chose a gospel and an epistle for every Sunday in the year. And I'm not suggesting we should read it in the authorized version, because I think that's quite old-fashioned and unnecessary but we could translate it, as it were, or use a modern translation, as, as Tullua did a few minutes ago, um, to, to do that. And he chose, as I say, gospel and epistle every Sunday in the year. And the gospel for today is this passage. And it's the only gospel that is repeated twice in the readings for the, each Sunday. It comes first on Mothering Sunday, when we think about the church, forgive me, not Mother's Day, but the church being the mother of us all, God being the father of us all. And then it comes on the last Sunday of the church's year, which is today, the Sunday next before Advent, and again, the gospel that is chosen. So Cranmer thought it was important that at least twice a year, the only gospel that he chose for twice a year, should be read on those two Sundays and this is the last Sunday of the church's year, and we come back again to the feeding of the 5,000. And as we read the story, it is so vivid, isn't it? Because Jesus got tired like the rest of us, and he set off with his disciples, and the crowds obviously saw where he was going, <laughs> a bit hard for Jesus to hide at that time. And they followed him, he went in a boat, but they followed him around the side of the lake of Galilee, and they caught up with him. And the crowds just kept coming, coming and coming and coming and coming. And um, if we forget everything else, I hope that you will remember that it was Jesus who first said, hang on, these people are going to be hungry. It wasn't the disciples who said, no, Lord, we're tired and we're hungry. Jesus. And he said to his disciples, where are you? St. John, of course, who was obviously had the inside um, track to Jesus and must have discussed it with him quite regularly, I suspect. But uh, St. John tells us that Jesus, um, he knew what he was going to do, but he just wanted to put them on their mantle and get them to start exercising faith. So he said to them, what are we going to do with these people? How are we going to feed them? And the one he asked was Philip. And Philip actually came from Bethsaida, so Jesus had a reasonable chance of... Oh, actually, sorry, thank you. That's right. Thank you very much. I must have. Um, it's rather like, you know, if you stop in Newcastle, 
chances are you'll meet somebody who's never been to Newcastle before. But if you want to find out about Newcastle, it's quite a good thing to ask a, a local. And that was what Philip was, a local. And Philip was very practical because he was sort of thinking about, oh, you know, 5,000, well, it's hopeless. It's no, it's no good at all. Uh, and um, Andrew, it was, who said, well, hang on a second. Um, there's a, a lad here with two five loaves and two fishes and things. But it's quite interesting, actually, there are two sorts of Christians in the world, aren't there? There's the one sort that says it can't be done. And the other who says, well, let's have a go anyway. It's going to be problematic, but let's see what we can do. And his faith was excited because he could see and knew something about Jesus. He could see the crowds were sufficiently daunting and impossible for human nature to do. And he brought, he was always bringing people to Jesus. He brought this lad to Jesus. And thank God for everyone in the church who brings people to Jesus. Because that's really the first, I think, first point that I would want to make out of this is that the situation in the world is beyond human relief. It's not possible. The problems in the world are not economic. You, if you watch the television, you'd think it was all the economy. We get the economy sorted and everything, and we're quite wrong. It'd be quite good to get the economy sorted. It would be a help, I quite agree. But it's not the end of the story. The problems are not economic. They're not even, dare I say it, ecological. Quite good to get the ecology right, otherwise we won't have a planet. But it'd be much better to realize that you're not going to solve the human problems, even if the ecology is up and running and the whole place is wonderful. Then what are you going to do? You can save the planet, but you can't save human nature. And human nature can only be saved by Jesus. So that's the first point, it seems to me. And I think that's why Cranmer probably chose it for at least twice a year, because there's something within us that thinks that somehow we're going to manage this thing. Somehow we'll get it sorted without we don't need God. And we do need God. Now, if I can divert just for a second, one of the, uh, I always want to encourage people who have the opportunity to look at one or two of the old divines for inspiration. Obviously, the Bible is the key source of inspiration and the Spirit is the key um, means by which the Bible is brought to life because he wrote it. But there were some very godly people in the past and one of the ones that I often come back to is a man called George Matheson. And uh, he was a Scot. You don't have to be a Scot to be my favorite, but he, he was blind from the age of 21 and he was a minister in the church at Ellen, just outside Glasgow. And uh, he was invited to preach at uh, Balmoral on one occasion by Queen Victoria. Uh, he died in about 18, I don't know, 1890, something like that. Uh, but he was a, 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 the minister there for several, 30 or 40 years. And he had that strange, uh, it's often the way I think we all understand with those who are blind the Lord seems to compensate in a most extraordinary way. He had a, an inner spirituality that is hugely, I think, attractive because he was meditating all the time 
on the Word of God. Uh, you could probably get it still. There's a lovely little gem called A Portrait of Christ in St. John by George Matheson. He's best known in this country, in England, for his um, hymn, O God, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Do you know that hymn? It's, it's, a, it's a most lovely hymn. And um, I think I would like it at my funeral, but it's too, it's too emotional. It would be impossible to grind the whole thing to a halt. But, uh, and its last verse is, O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust, life's glory, dead. And from the ground there rises red, life that shall endless be. It's a wonderful hymn, actually. But he's best known for that. But actually, he should, I think, be better known for his theology. Now, one of the things that he says about St. John's Gospel, which I want to commend to you, is that St. John is always trying to get our minds to effect a transition in three different areas as we read St. John's Gospel. Number one is to transition from the flesh to the spirit. And that's why we start in John 3 with John, Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was like many people today. Very intelligent, very bright. I'm sure he was most entertaining and lovely man to spend time with. But he had his faith didn't satisfy him. And he was struggling like um, Archbishop Temple is writing about. So he came to Jesus by night. I mean, there are endless books in people's libraries about why he came by night. I don't pretend to know the answer to why that was, but I suspect is he couldn't get near Jesus by day. <laughs> he was surrounded by people all the time. But anyway, he came by night, and he started a theological discussion with Jesus where he, he said, you know, Lord, you're amazing. You're wonderful. And Jesus sort of very sweetly cut him short and said, Nicodemus, you'll never see the kingdom of God. You'll never enter the kingdom of God until you're born again, or born from above. Uh, as you all know, I love the Americans. If some section of the Americans hadn't sort of hijacked the expression born again, we could use it in English, because it's actually what Jesus means. But it's become now almost a term of abuse in this country to be a born again you know, Christian and all that sort of thing. But actually what Jesus was saying, I think can also mean born from above, as you know. So Jesus is saying, hang on a second, you'll never see the kingdom of God unless you're born from above. And Nicodemus thinks, oh, wait a minute, I can't be born again. Can a man enter his mother's womb again? And you, you, you can sort of almost feel Jesus longing to say, mm, I'm not talking about that. It's what George Matheson says, the transition from the flesh to the spirit. I'm talking about being born of the spirit. When a spirit of God comes into the spirit of a man or a woman, he is born again. Become a spiritual, just as when a man Women come together, a baby's born, we've seen lots of them, isn't it lovely? When the Spirit of God comes into the spirit of a man or a woman, a spiritual baby is born. How many here have become a spiritual baby in the last five years? Any? 
I'm sure you have if you think about it. I put the question the wrong way, probably. But it's a new start. It's a new beginning. It's not you brushed up and made to look respectable so you can come to St. Thomas's. It's a total new birth. And that's what Sir George Matheson is saying to us. Whenever we see these things, we see it again with the woman at the well. When you remember, uh, Jesus says to her, if only you knew who you were talking to, you would ask him for water and he would give you spiritual water. And she says, well, hey, man, the, the, the well is deep and we haven't even got a, you haven't even got a bucket. And again, you think Jesus must think, oh, I'm not going to get water from there. I'm going to get water from there. He was talking about the Spirit. And when Jesus is talking in the temple in John 7, he, he, he said, all who come thirst, etc., etc., let them come and be filled. It's the Spirit. It's the Spirit. It's the Spirit. St. John is the gospel of the Spirit. All the way through, and that's what George Matheson encouraging us to transition. Look for the spiritual implications of what Jesus is saying. And as you may know, I don't know, one of the um, contemporary authors that I, I love is Father Raniero, a Catholic, a Catholic monk, um, Canta La Messa, who is a preacher to the papal household. He's still alive. He preaches every Advent and every Lent to the Pope, and then he publishes uh, sermons. Um, as, as little books. You can get them very easily, and they're, they're wonderful. His wonderful book on the Holy Spirit. He, was, he went to America. He was a theological professor at um, Milan University. He went to America as an observer from the Vatican. And two lovely lay Americans offered to pray for him when he was there. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he took off. And um, he writes the most lovely, lovely stuff. Now he, because he's brought to bear all the early church, you know, I, I love modern books so often, but there's usually quotations from lovely modern contemporary people, or almost contemporary people, uh, Corrie ten Boom, and with, um, with Father Raniero, they're all from the early church fathers. And it's such an exciting, joyful thing to see that the early church fathers from the first century, second, third, fourth, believed all the things we know we ought to believe all the things from the Bible and they put it so well and so excitingly. But one of the points that he makes is that the early church celebrated Pentecost for 50 days because they understood that the Bible includes two accounts of Pentecost. One is at the end of John 19 when Jesus after the resurrection on the resurrection Sunday got together with his disciples and breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And they were so excited. That's the first time. And it's inconceivable that St. John wouldn't have included a Pentecostal experience because he was talking about the Holy Spirit all the way through his gospel, leading up to that moment. And what I didn't know, and it wouldn't be difficult because I don't know lots of things, but he, what Raniero discovered and teaches is that the early church celebrated Pentecost, therefore, for 50 days, not at the end of 50 days, from the first time of the evening of the resurrection until Pentecost Sunday, which is described in Acts 2, Luke's account of the of the receiving the Holy Spirit. So it was a major, major festival and, um, and very exciting for that. The second transition 
the first being from the flesh to the spirit. The second transition that George Matheson encourages us in his little book when we're reading St. John's Gospel is to move in our minds from the local to the universal. So it's not just that on one occasion Jesus fed 5,000 people. Isn't that wonderful? Of course. We take that for granted, but what's the implication of that for us? It's the implication is that Jesus feeds everyone everywhere throughout history. It's not just 2,000 years ago and we read it and we get excited and we think how wonderful. It's that he did it in order to show that anyone who is hungry comes to Jesus and is fed. And 5,000 is a doddle to Jesus. He's feeding, as Ben mentioned this morning, Christians all over the world are receiving the Spirit, the third. So from the local to the universal. And the third transition for the sake of completion, if I may, that St. John is trying to get us to move our minds into is from the future to the present. That is to say, it's John who records that Jesus says uh, at the time in the Garden of Gethsemane, now is the judgment. Not that you and I have to wait, I for less time than you looking at most of you, <laughs> until we see him face to face. Now, judgment in, in St. John's Gospel is brought forward as Jesus speaks. And we come face to face to him and we fall on our knees and we cry out for forgiveness and we receive forgiveness and the kingdom and the kingdom life starts now. We don't have to wait to get to heaven. So for Christians, death is the great illusion because the kingdom of God is here and is now and we start to live in the kingdom of God, which is why life in the Christian faith is so different from life outside. So those are the three transitions he's looking for. So now when we go back to the feeding of the 5,000, what we see is exactly that. And the three lessons, I think that we probably think about drawing out again as we come to the end of the church's year and look forward to Advent next Sunday when we're celebrating the coming of Jesus, both comings of Jesus, both the first coming, which we celebrate at Christmas. That sounds an exciting program at Christmas. You're going to tell everybody in Newcastle that Jesus is here? But we also celebrate the anticipated second coming because there's as much in the Bible about the second coming as it is about the first coming. So it's as sure as anything that he's coming back. We don't know, of course, when. So number one, it, it, the, the story I think that Cramer wants us to remind ourselves of again today of, is about the unsatisfied needs of men. Picture yourself in Jesus' shoes looking out at these 5,000 people and he thinks, I don't know what he thinks, but he, I, I bet he thought, wow, what an opportunity, Father, to show them that we are the answer to the hunger of the world. And Jesus explains, as you remember, at the end of the, after the whole thing had, was over, 
Jesus explains to his disciples, I, he said, am the bread of life. You don't go looking for physical bread. We're transitioning, as George Matheson would say, into the spirit. I am the source of the spirit. If you come to Jesus, Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So human resources are hopelessly inadequate. Once we get that securely into our hearts and our minds, then we look to the source of the only answer, the only answer there is, which is Jesus. Secondly, the big question, does Jesus want to feed? That's why I mentioned at the beginning it was Jesus' idea in the first place. He saw the need. Of course he does. He's longing to. He is the same. Yesterday, today, and praise God forever. And he stands waiting, waiting for us to say, Lord, you're right. I really, really need you. But the third point that I think I'd like to draw out of it is simply this. You may have noticed in the story, I'm sure you have, that the miraculous bit was making the bread and making the fish go round. And 12 baskets were gathered up. Well, that's, humanly speaking, totally impossible. So it was, a, it was an astonishing miracle. That was the miracle. But Jesus, having done the miracle... <laughs> and changed these little loaves in two fishes into enough for 5,000 people and 12 baskets over. He then delegates the distribution of the bread and the fish to the disciples. Now, some of us might have said, well, Lord, why did you do that? Yeah, you made the bread and the fish. Why didn't you just sort of distribute it? They were all sitting there on the grass. St. Mark, you may remember, who was there, obviously, um, must have told, or Peter must have told Mark, probably, when they were sitting around the sun. It was Mark who says that the grass was green, which at certain times of year, apparently, it is. But that's a sort of touch about, he was there, he saw it, and remembered <laughs> the grass was green. But Jesus gave the bread and the fish to the disciples and said, you distribute it. Get it? The task is left now to the church in every generation to be the bearers of the good news and the ministries and the giftings that Jesus has prepared and done and made ready and given us as the message. And it's to us that he's entrusted all these tasks that you're involved in here, it's so, so exciting. All the, it's, it's a wonderful thing, I think. The, the, there's, there's a great move, isn't there, in the church to recognize again our place in the um, good works. Because we're not, well, I better be careful how I put this, but we're not saved by good works. But forgive me if I add, we're not saved without them. And the good works follow the salvation out of recognition. Like when my darling wife was filled with the Holy Spirit 
the first thing she said to the Lord, she had never been prayed to be filled with the Holy Spirit for the first 10 years of her Christian life. And uh, she always used to say to me, when I was first ordained, we used to go out to endless evening meetings. And as, just before I shut the front door, she used to say to me always, you will tell them, won't you? It makes a difference. It makes a difference. <laughs> I said, I'll have a go. Because it does. And our function is to do that, to get involved with it. It's a challenge. Because he's coming back. There's a lovely story which I'll end with, if I may. You may know it, but it's a true story. And uh, in my um, parish life at Holy Trinity Brompton, there was a woman there in the congregation who knew uh, the garden that we were talking about. But some years ago, there was a man traveling in Sicily, in Italy. And he came across a house with a beautifully kept garden. She knew, she knew it, and, and she'd been there. It was called the English Garden. It belonged to a family called the Whitaker, who made Marsala in Italy. And they had this garden. It was in Palermo. And it um, apparently had various English sort of plants, like Cineraria, that don't grow in Italy, but they were planted there by the English people there. And working away in the corner of the garden was the, the gardener, and they got talking. And the traveler said to him, how, how long have you worked here? And he said, 40 years. And the traveler said, um, is the owner about? And the gardener said, well, he's away at the moment, but he'll be back. When will he be back? I don't know, the gardener said. How long is it since you last saw him? Said the traveler, intrigued really by the whole situation. I've never seen him, he said. I've never seen him. And the traveler said, what an amazing thing. You've worked here for 40 years without seeing the owner and you don't know when he's coming back. Why, he said, this place is kept so beautifully. You'd think you were expecting him tomorrow. Today, sir. Today. Would you like to stand? We're going to invite the Holy Spirit. And some people say, well, isn't he here already? Yeah, he is. But this is the moment at which he welcomes us to welcome him. And um, as I was saying yesterday, you don't have to, I encourage people to hold their hands out. You don't have to, it's not part of the liturgy, but it's the opposite of this. This sort of creates the impression, Lord, I dare you to touch me. I only came because, and this means, Lord, I want everything you can give me. And the Lord is here. He sees the need, and he longs to fill them and to fill us. Father, thank you for your great love for us, your care for us. 
Thank you for your forgiveness for us and the grace that you pour out upon us. And we ask, Lord, one more thing this morning. Fill us. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill us once again with your Holy Spirit. Now let's wait on the Lord for a moment or two.